Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Today, I'm very pleased to invite Robin Goldberg into a really important conversation. Robin began her career at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles and was a nutritional counselor for the Susan Cravoy Eating Disorders Program at the Wright Institute. She is the Director of Nutrition Service for the Control Center an addictions intensive outpatient program. Robin has appeared on national television as the eating disorder expert on The Insider and has been quoted in the New York Times, The Huffington Post, Shape, Fitness, Diabetes Forecast, and other publications. Robin teaches nutrition classes for the motion picture industry and has a practice specializing in medical conditions and eating disorders in Beverly Hills, California since 1997. Most recently, her book, The Eating Disorder Trap, A Guide for Clinicians and Loved Ones, was released in 2020. So welcome, Robin. I'm I'm so glad you could be with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's absolutely my pleasure. And one of the things that I don't think you realize is you are the very first nutritionist on my podcast, and I'm so excited about it. Amazing. Such an honor and privilege to be the first dietitian. Yeah. You know, the the thing about it is, you know, with process addictions, I was thinking about how it doesn't matter whether it's sex or food or money, it's all about brokenheartedness, right? And, And so I thought we would talk a little bit about that as part of our conversation. But just to get right into it, I'm wondering, you know, eating disorder, the term itself is something that a lot of folks don't quite get. And so what what actually qualifies someone with an eating disorder? Well, multiple things. I, I would say when a person's focus is strictly on what they're eating, what they're not eating, how much, how little, their medical well-being can be impacted from the standpoint of maybe they've not gotten their period or they've lost their period or they don't have an erection or they are losing hair and they don't have a thyroid condition. They have a lot of lightheadedness, or I shouldn't even say a lot. They have lightheadedness from like lying down to standing up. If you were watching TV on your couch and then standing up, It's like, okay, um, I'm seeing stars, I'm seeing flashes, or the ability to isolate where I think with many of the clients I see that have eating disorders, especially over this last year and a half, they'll say, oh, I've loved the pandemic. I don't have to see people. I don't have to eat with people. And it's really, I think COVID has been what I would say, like, you know, a, a sponge that, you know, attracts mold and bacteria, I feel like the eating disorder has just thrived in these moments of 
isolation and loneliness and being able to work on perfecting the disorder of food rules, more food rules, sharpening those, being deceitful. So there's so many layers to it. I mean, that could be a podcast within itself, mm. but there are many, as you can imagine. Wow. So I have never given any any focus to that idea that you're you're raising that the pandemic has actually been kind of like a petri dish for eating disorders. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, many individuals have anxiety to eat in public or eat with family or with friends or to eat out mm. in general or to be seen eating and just the thoughts and obsessiveness that are just focused around this topic and or even movement when you think about even just like the last year and a half how there's elements that we've not been able to control even creating routine you know eating disorders like rigidity and rules mm. and when a person lives that way and their rules and rigidities interrupted that's earth shattering and how to create a new routine and how to be flexible and open these are just all culprits that are in the making for a disaster. Yes. And part of the disaster, as I'm listening to you, is that there's really dire consequences, right? We're talking about medical conditions that are actually brought on by the eating issues and, and at, at its worst can result in death, as we know. And so we're not just talking about something light, right? We're talking about something that has heaviness and, and serious consequences attached to, to them, right? Correct. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I was discussing with a client this morning who hereditarily has high cholesterol and she's very young. And I said, oh, I can relate. I said, I've high hereditarily have had high cholesterol since I was 13 and everyone in my family has cholesterol and heart issues, which is how I got into my profession. And, and she said, well, I know because she was discussing her fear of eating red meat. And I had said, well, you know, there's actually um, many lean cuts of red meat that could actually be leaner than poultry. And I was you know, showing her this handout on, you know, virtually. And she says, oh, it's amazing. She says, because, you know, my father has an eating disorder and he would not believe this. And I'm going to bring this, you know, home over the holidays so they can see it. And I said, you know, Robin, it's true because when I was in residential and more restrictive, my cholesterol was even higher than it is now. And I had basically said, you know what, it doesn't matter if you're trying to eat this specific way and your body just, you know, hereditarily manufactures more cholesterol. And she was like, it's true because she said, my, my cousin, the same situation was so focused on it and she ended up developing, you know, a heart condition. So it could have been coincidental, but I think we don't realize that problems could develop that may have not been there or that may not be, you know, genetic for us too. Mm -hmm. Right. Almost like a ripple effect. This might sound like a very basic question, but can you just share with our listeners the different types of eating disorders? So 
the one that's most common, that's the least discussed is binge eating disorder. And that's actually what I would say most individuals that have eating disorder struggle with. It's in the eating disorder world, about 60% of women struggle with it and 40% of men. Mm-hmm. And people could look quote unquote normal. You can't look at somebody to determine if they have an eating disorder. So a person that lives in a larger body just might naturally be someone who lives in a larger body or a person lives in a smaller body could be struggling with binge eating disorder. We never know. So this is the most common eating disorder. The ones that people are more familiar with include anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Um, there's what's called OSFED, other specified feeding eating disorder. And there's other disorders that are noted under that. I think uh, a common eating disorder that's that's really, I would say, escalated in my practice over COVID is what's called orthorexia nervosa, and that's the obsession to eat healthy. So it's taking health and bringing it to a quote-unquote unhealthy place, meaning that it has to be organic, it has to be raw, it has to fit into these specific rigid uh, parameters for a person to consume it. And, and basically where they're taking health to an unhealthy extreme. Um, I mean, there's many other eating disorders I can discuss. There's diabulimia, people that are, that have diabetes. Um, it's oftentimes seen in those with type one diabetes and they are limiting, they're restricting their insulin injections as a byproduct of seeing, you know, physically how their body has, has changed. I mean, I could go on, on, but there's, you know, exercise bulimia, people that purge via exercise, but there's, there's a lot of eating disorders. And the problem too, Andrew, is that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for insurance purposes, these names, these labels have been what's introduced, but sometimes a person could have multiple eating disorders, Mm -hmm. which is what I was speaking about, OSFED, O-S-F-E-D, other specified feeding eating disorder, or a person could have one eating disorder that will morph into another too. So there's all, all kinds of combinations, in other words. I, I wanted to go back to, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but is it orthorexia? Orthorexia? Yeah, you said it correctly. So, so Robin, do you suppose that in a city like Los Angeles, where there's so much emphasis on looks and appearance, that, that that's even more prevalent in a city like ours? Yes, yes I think you know, larger cities, there's been such a focus on having the quote unquote, the healthiest foods or the, the joke in my industry when clients will speak about clean eating, I always say washing your food underwater will give you clean eating. So you know, <laughs> there's this play on words and we think, oh, I have to be mm-hmm. clean. I have to be natural, raw, and, and mm-hmm. certainly in larger cities, but I think also that we're in a city that's based on entertainment and Hollywood. And there is this perfectionistic look and ideal that's been overemphasized. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I, I, I think as we're talking, I, I can think of so many folks who fall into that category of having rigidity and, and very tight rules. And 
I actually have never really thought of that as an eating disorder per se. So I'm already starting to go through my Rolodex of clients and think how many folks have those kinds of issues that are, are really part of their suffering. And, or Andrew, it's not necessarily mm -hmm. clients. They could be people that are in your life that you socialize with. It's been normalized right. through right. diet culture. And the other term that we use, it's called healthisms. So healthism is like, well, I'm really worried about your health. And, you know, with my health, this is the reason that I am gluten-free. This is the reason that I don't eat anything refined and processed. It's like the blaming on the health. It's blaming on the genetics, which there's, there's so much inaccuracy about that. And I think uh, through these, the, the stigma and diet culture and just all the politics behind it where people, family, clients are saying, oh, I'm, I'm eating this way and I'm being this way because of such and such. So it's, it's taking it to a uber unhealthy degree. Right, right. So one of the things that, that this discussion stirred up for me is that in my practice, I don't consider myself to be an eating disorder specialist, but through the years, there are clients who I am very aware are either in recovery from various eating disorders or are starting to identify issues around their eating, whether they call it an eating disorder or disordered eating, which I would love to hear your, your opinion about that as well. But, but I think um, there's something about collaborating as professionals that, that really has always been super important to me. So I'm wondering when is it time for a therapist to refer to a registered dietitian or possibly refer a client out of their practice altogether? Thank you. Excellent questions. I first wanted to explain the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Disordered eating is basically when a person has limitations, they, they aren't, I would say, completely, they haven't completely normalized how they approach food. For example, they might say, well, I'm only eating um, oatmeal on the weekends because on the weekends, I know that's when I'm going on a hike. I feel like I'm more sedentary during the week and I don't want to give myself permission to have it. That's disordered versus a person that has a healed relationship with food will approach like, well, what am I in the mood for, for breakfast? I know during the week I have a limited amount of time, but I have on hand oh, I have those instant packets of oatmeal, but I also have those yogurt parfaits I bought. I have my, you know, frozen breakfast burrito, et cetera. So they're able to improvise versus having rules and stipulations regarding when they're going to consume a specific food or, you know, disordered eating could be a person says, well, I'm not having a sandwich at lunch because I know I'm having pasta and pizza for dinner tonight. It's like they're constantly thinking about what their future or prior food choice has been and manipulating and adjusting it based on that. And it's like I would say, you know, your stomach doesn't know how to tell time. Your stomach is not counting. Your body is constantly working and metabolizing. And it's a person that's putting quite a bit of thought, but not where it's affected their well-being and, and livelihood. 
if that, that might be problematic, but I hear that it, the consequences aren't so great and there's a little more flexibility. Yes, but when a person is disordered eating and thinking, the, the flexibility, if there is any, becomes narrower and narrower. And the pleasure in eating, they might say, oh, I experience pleasure, but it's very calculated when they can experience pleasure and how much and how little it's again, versus like a person who is an intuitive eater makes mm -hmm. choices freely without having feelings of guilt or shame or remorse. They're not recapping what they ate, what they didn't eat, what their future meal will be or future movement, they're able to be in the moment and be able to carry on versus computing and recalibrating what they've ingested. It's like, there's a lot to think about in this world. I'm like, wow, it's exhausting to put all this time and energy towards how much, how little, when, why, and where my intake will be. Sure, sure. So the second part of the question is about collaboration and, and case consultation and, and referring out if need be? So the first thing I would say is when a client will say to a clinician like, oh, I'm in recovery for an eating disorder. I think oftentimes that statement is overlooked because many clinicians, and like you mentioned, Andrew, aren't trained in eating disorders and maybe don't know appropriate screening questions or feel uncomfortable digging deeper like, well, what kind of eating disorder, eating disorders have you struggled with? When was the last time you have engaged in self-destructive behavior? You know, have you ever been in a residential treatment team? Have you had a therapist or psychologist or dietitian that are eating disorder trained? So like, I think being able to learn how to unpack what those questions are, and, and unless you're in the world that I'm in, people don't know those questions. They'll say like, oh, they have a history. Like I just you know met with someone today that came to me from her therapist and her therapist, he had worked in any sort of treatment. So he is familiar. And she would say like, oh, I'm in, you know, I'm in recovery from bulimia nervosa. And basically as he started to unpack, I was like, yep, you know what? I had a slip up uh, the other month and this is what's been happening. And the more he was asking questions, he was like, okay, um, she needs a team, but I think oftentimes people fall through the cracks and either they, like, like this person told me with her prior therapist, she never disclosed anything. Cause she's like, Robin, I've been in therapy, you know, my whole life. And I felt like I could outsmart my therapist because they wouldn't know the questions to ask. And I just thought like I needed someone that could keep me accountable and challenge me, which was why she parted away. So I think oftentimes it's, just do the lack of training and information that other providers have. So that's, I think, an important loophole that needs to be filled. And when you ask about referring to a registered dietitian or even to, you know, another clinician, mental health care provider that's eating sort of trained, I think when a client will say, like, say they're coming to Andrew for anxiety and depression, and then they tell you, well, when I'm anxious, I find myself going on a run. And it's like, well, I'm going on a longer run. And, oh yeah, I skipped my dinner. It's like when a person's hearing that, I think oftentimes I'll have mental health care providers refer to me and say like, yes, I think you know they need a dietitian. But the, you know, I would say majority of the times, the scope is out of their 
context of what they're trained in. And I say more times than none, like I really think so-and-so you know, needs a mental health care provider that's an eating disorder trained clinician. And mm-hmm. I think like, and, and you know this because you've been in the field you know, a long time. Like I really feel like there's enough business for everyone. If someone's not in my scope of practice, like I'm the first to refer out. And I always want to have more team members that are going to be in the best interest to help the client. So I have, you know, had, you know, a number of providers say like, you know what, this is not my area. Is there a therapist you would recommend? And definitely. And I so appreciate that just professional responsibility. And then others, like I've, I've said many times, like I had said to someone recently that sent someone to me and I explained like all the reasons why this person needed an eating disorder trained you know, therapist and therapist came back like, well, I've worked in addiction. I think it's someone I was like, it's not. And actually the client ended up going into what's called, uh, well, so I told the therapist I had referred to an insert trained physician because we only have like a handful in LA. She's like, oh, that's great. And I, you know, led in so many different ways, therapists like that I needed a therapist that was like the counterpart of what I do and the physician and still didn't get it. And it was fortunate that the family had said to the doctor, like, you know what, we think we like the family picked up and this does not always happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like the client will be attached. They have a history. Mm-hmm. And literally I had, the, the, you know, I had told this therapist, and I was like, listen, this client went into what's called medical stabilization. And she's like, what's that? And I was like, when you're too sick to go into residential, it's to get your baseline function of all your organs working. And I think more times than one realizes, like these clients need to be referred to providers, but also I know spaces are so limited these days too, that oftentimes I think it's having any sort of provider like me. And then I will, I mean, I will tell them, but I think it's, it's really when the focal point, like if someone's coming to you for anxiety and depression, and then they keep going to, well, I don't know if I could take a day off from exercise, or I don't know, you want me to, you know, Robin's wanting me to not skip dinner or to be able to add the carb to dinner where it's like, they're coming to you for a reason and they're not mm-hmm. staying on the fairway there. It's constantly bombarded with all these other areas. I mean, mm-hmm. those are several indicators. I mean, there's many, many more. Sure. Sure. And what I also hear you saying is it it really takes a very particular team to be effective. And and so for those who are listening to our conversation, I I think it's so important to just do whatever it takes to, to find your people, to find your professional team who can really be in your corner and and get what it takes to to help you continue your healing process. So thank you for, for saying all of that. And of course, but the other thing is I want to say, and I always say this to clients and and several of the psychologists that have been just so professional with their integrity, I'll say like, you could go back to them at another point in time. We just need someone that mm-hmm. lives us and gets it. And I had one client, it was maybe like eight or nine months later, she wanted to go back to her prior psychologist so she could see like how well she's doing. And when the psychologist saw her, she's like, she's doing well, but she's like, Robin, I'm still not like the right person. I could tell. And I think it takes 
not just someone that really is looking at their professional responsibility, but really mm -hmm. reading in between the lines, because whether it's six months or a year, a person is not recovered. It is a long, long journey and a work in progress. And mm -hmm. to know like if a clinician's keeping that client, they're doing them a disservice mm -hmm. and to get to be recovered versus to be like, oh yeah, I'm in recovery. Recovery is like not the permanence feel like being mm -hmm. recovered is like, yeah, I have a solid foundation and I have a team and I check in now every, so, I mean, it's like knowing they, it's like, I say, you know what? I go to the internist, I go to the gynecologist, like, this is how I can maintain everything within me. I feel fine, but it's like, it's my professional responsibility to take care of the one body that I have. Right, right. So shifting gears a bit, I'm wondering if you see people that present with eating disorders, but also have compulsive sexual behavior. I do. I think more times than none as of lately, Many of the clients I've been seeing, as you can imagine, don't have any desire for anything because they're malnourished due to excluding a specific food group, due to a lower intake. I, I actually, thinking of you know several I see that are in you know groups for you know sex and love addicts, et cetera. And, and they'll say like, wow, as I've been learning how to legalize foods, it's sort of like when they started with managing just their sex and love addiction, where it was like, they were all over the place with food. And, and maybe once they got that component managed in the relationship front, then food was the area in their life they can be sloppy. And because like, I can't have multiple partners. I, you know, I, can I be addicted to porn? Well, I have a family. I mean, it's like really interesting to see how once their food becomes stabilized better, their food is not running them. They're running their food. Maybe the, the sex and love addiction part gets messy. It's interesting how I've seen it all different ways. Sure. So as part of sex and love addiction, we're, we're talking about intimacy challenges, of course. So how do challenges with intimacy sometimes go along with eating disorders? Well, I think there could be one partner that just has no interest because they're so entrenched in their food difficulties or being seen naked or they have specific rules about how they can be seen or not be seen because they have so much shame and lack of self where it's like they kind of feel like you know being intimate with someone is i would view it as like checking it off your to-do list like let me just get it over with um mm -hmm. that they're not able to encompass like having a relationship but also then there are clients that i do see that feel like well there's been boundaries that i've tried to create within myself centered around food so they have found that, and, and maybe their partner's not on the same page that they are with you know, their relationship, but their, their desire to be intimate is like increased because it's like, wow, you know what? I'm 
giving myself permission to eat all these different kinds of foods now. And they feel like, wow, I hadn't had this energy before, or just this desire. So I think it could go in many directions. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, I, I heard you mention shame, which of course is so profound in both eating disorders and compulsive sexual behavior. And of course, we're talking about body image issues and not just lightweight body image issues, but just profound body image issues. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit in terms of how that manifests in in eating disorders and how that might also uh, get in the way of of folks being uh, physically intimate with, with anybody. Body image is the foundation of eating disorder recovery, and it's the first to go, and it's the last to really solidify. And developing a positive body image and the kind of where where the origin for a person, where that came from, I mean, it could be from a young age, they were told, they won't be successful unless they're beautiful or they're handsome or, you know, as long as you keep your face looking a certain way. I mean, it's, it's really a deep concept. And I think that impacts so many, how they feel about whether it's being in a relationship pertaining to the food choices they make and, and being able to look at how a person feels about themselves. Like I would say, really trying to pay attention to how I feel versus a scale is not going to help you improve your body image. Asking your partner, how do I look is not going to help you within your body image, but really doing the work in what will help you be the best you can be for you without comparing yourself to someone else is, is very important. So I, I appreciate what you said about it and I'm paraphrasing, but that body image is the first piece and the last piece. It's almost like a bookend. of. It's the full bookend. It is your foundation. It's like you're being sandwiched in. It's like if I was an Oreo and I was the cream filling, like the wafers are like body image. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Now I'm getting hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought of that with the Oreo. Yeah. Yeah. Who can, who can resist an Oreo? (laughs) So I also want to talk about your book with you because, um, you know, the the book recently came out. It's called The Eating Disorder Trap, A Guide for Clinicians and Loved Ones. And it has so much in it. And I'm curious, what what do you want our listening audience to, to know about your book? Thank you, Andrew. Well, I want everyone to know that you don't have to be an expert in the eating disorder field. I wanted to write a book and it's hard to find books that can encompass everyone. So this could be for someone struggling. This could be for a loved one. This could be a provider who doesn't specialize in eating disorders. This could be for your grandmother to help, you know, a friend and you, you learning how you speak to people is very important. And also I always like to to say to clients, it's not about blaming this family member or that family member. It's being able to look at now. I mean, it's, it's, it is recommended that 
the loved ones are in their own therapy and they also address their own relationship to food, body, and their own biases because we all have biases. We're in a society that provides data and, you know, we learn how to approach life and, you know, different elements. And there are biases, whether a person says they have them or, or not. It oftentimes when the identified patient is in therapy, then they realize like, oh yes, you know, my, my dad has, you know, this bias towards this type of body or, you know, my sister, I mean, it's just like, it's there. So I wanted to be able to make the point. I mean, eating disorders are deadly. It, they affect all body parts. There is not one body part that is spared and being able to look at how you can be helpful without harming is, is important, but also it doesn't matter if you're 16 years old or you're, you know, 76 years old, it's Mm -hmm. never too late to get help. And I have all ages and genders and body shapes and sizes in my practice. And to know it doesn't matter if you're a newbie or you've been living decades with the secret that you can mm, help. Beautiful. I, I really want to emphasize because whether we're talking about eating disorders or any addictive compulsive uh, issues, the loved ones are so instrumental in, in helping the individual heal. And I I love what you said, Robin, about just educating everybody around so that they can be of support rather than somehow sabotaging or or just not even intentionally getting in the way. Agreed. Because I think, you know, oftentimes loved ones want to help. It's not done in a malicious way with the messages that they're bringing to the table, but knowing that they have work to do to help that person who's having a difficult time. Sure. So if, if there's one or two takeaways from today's podcast, what would you like our listeners to remember? I would like our listeners to remember that, you know, recovery is not linear and there's going to be some days or some meals that your confidence is greater because you're having a great time. Other times that every meal or every waking moment is a struggle and brutal, but just know it will get easier. It's the repetition of whatever you've been working on with your team, that things will get better, but to have realistic expectations within yourself and really just trying to put that inner critic aside. Beautiful. I I really, really appreciate you joining us today on so many levels, but especially because you're, you're such a breath of fresh air. I, oh, I really love the way you describe things. And, and I think there's something about food in our society that's so distorted and so twisted. And, um, and we're not only really talking to folks with eating disorders, we're talking to everybody about mindful eating, right? And, and um, hopefully, food being an ally and not somehow some rigid rule-bound experience. So I really, really appreciate you being with us today, Robin. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I I enjoyed our conversation. It's been a pleasure. Take good care. Thank you for listening today. It was wonderful sharing the time with my colleague, 
Robin Goldberg and discussing this really vital topic that affects those affected by compulsive sexual behavior. Robin can be reached through her website at askaboutfood.com or theeatingdisordertrap.com. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are topics you would like us to discuss in the future, just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts and thanks again for being with us today.